Welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about cooperative businesses. I'm Asa Marshall with Cooperatives First, an organization that promotes cooperative business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. For more information on us and what we do, visit cooperativesfirst.com. If you need resources for starting your own co-op, check out the co-op creator at coopcreator.com. This is a great resource site that has everything you need to get your co-op up and running. For this episode, I spoke with Sean Sunias, the Executive Director of the Saskatchewan First Nations Economic Development Network. The network's mandate is to promote and support the sustainable economic livelihood of Saskatchewan First Nations communities through building capacity, relationships, and knowledge. So we had a great conversation about economic development in First Nations communities, including the potential for growth in emerging sectors, barriers to business, and why cooperatives might be a good fit for First Nations businesses. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Today I'm joined by my guest Sean Sunias to talk about Indigenous economic development. So thanks for being here, Sean. Thank you. Sean is a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation in Saskatchewan and a board member with Red Pheasant's Economic Development Corporation. He's also the executive director of the Saskatchewan First Nations Economic Development Network. Sean has over 24 years of experience in social and economic development roles, having held senior positions with the Saskatoon Regional Economic Development Authority, Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, Saskatchewan Advocate for Children and Youth, the University of Saskatchewan, and the Department of Justice. He has worked with First Nations, municipal, provincial, and federal governments on a number of key provincial and national strategies and legislative processes, and continues to work towards Indigenous inclusion in the economy from employment to economic development. Great. So I'll maybe just go straight into our first question here. And I wanted you to just tell us a bit about your background in economic development and maybe talk about some of the favorite projects that you've worked on. Sure. Um, I actually spent about the first uh, 20 years of my career in social development, uh, focused a a lot of my time on uh, child welfare with the Advocate for Children and Youth, which was an independent office of legislative assembly. So uh, the majority of my career uh, was spent on working with our kind of most vulnerable citizens in Saskatchewan, uh, children and, and uh, First Nations uh, communities. But I had always had a bit of a you know entrepreneurial streak in me, and uh, you know starting in two thousand and one, I opened uh, kind of an online jewelry business, so dealing in kind of precious stones and and gold jewelry. So I did that for about fifteen years. And uh, in 2007, I opened up a, a used car lot on 8th Street and uh, ended up importing about 350 Harley-Davidsons from the United States over a few years and uh, got out of that. And I, you know, bought some land in Warman to, to look at some development. So I always, my 9 to 5 job was kind of government and then my 5 to midnight job was, uh, you know, kind of pursuing some of my entrepreneurial interests. The kind of the transition I made out of social development into uh, economic development formally really arose out of uh, kind of my experience in the profession, I guess, of helping people where I saw that despite great efforts and many times great people, when it came to decision-making or where those decisions would reside, I I really found there was an absence of any champions for change or real change happening. So much like any report you might find, whether it's social development or even economic development, sometimes uh, they all have to collect dust and I was kind of at a point in my career where I you know I was fairly high in government but I I wasn't able to make the kind of changes that our our province requires and I saw economic development as a real potential 
for our communities in particular to exercise more sovereignty because it's difficult to be sovereign if you're not financially sovereign. So I moved into the kind of economic development sector with the hope that if, you know, we're able to get our community's capacity and network and uh, abilities up to par and then along mainstream business, that we would be able to exercise more of our kind of self-direction around our own dollars and having dollars to actually implement some of the things that we need in our communities. Mm-hmm. That's a long answer, but no, that's, that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> yeah, and and so, I mean, since you've entered this economic development world then, have you started to see some changes or have you seen some projects that have achieved what you kind of wanted to see? What I, I guess there's a couple of different sectors. So one, you know, we have our, our individual entrepreneurs and, uh, you know, there's some anecdotal evidence that says, uh, you know, Indigenous people in Saskatchewan and Canada are entering small, medium businesses at a much higher rate, proportionally still small, but... Uh, in terms of uh, the ratio, very high. You know, our people do have an entrepreneurial spirit in them and they see that as a way to, you know, participate in the economy a little bit more effectively and pursue their passions. So there's a lot of change there. Uh, we have a lot of great young people entering the field and, and you know, we're well populated in Saskatchewan with folks that are really uh, doing well and making a name for themselves and so forth. The second part of that, I guess, is our, our communities, which generally operate uh, under a, an economic development corporation for or on behalf of the community. Now we've 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 got some very successful uh, active corporations that are very mature and sophisticated with a diverse set of business holdings that have done very well over the last you know 10, 15, 20 years. Um, some of them have have really benefited uh, benefited from being located uh, next to kind of resource extraction areas, potash mining, other things of that nature that have made that path easier to get involved as business owners and in that supply chain and other services like food services, security, things of like that, that they can kind of build up their, their business portfolio. But there's a lot of communities that aren't in that same boat that may be geographically isolated from those kind of endeavors. So they've had to look at other ways to do uh, some things and, and they, they've been able to enter markets and trucking and agriculture and, and different areas such as that. But we still have a lot of our communities that are just in their when it comes to business development. So they may not be structured formally or, or you know, still in that process of uh, developing governance, finding dollars. Everybody's kind of working off the side of their desk, uh, the old adage, in, in terms of getting some things off the ground and running. And, you know, there's a real opportunity there for, you know, the network, other business associations, government, municipalities, and so forth to start to look at how to partner with our communities on, on developing some of those initiatives. So certainly there's there's been a lot of change. I, I wouldn't necessarily take any responsibility for it, but the network does strive to provide opportunities for our communities to see what's out there. Um, and, and my motto has always been we have to play uh, leapfrog, not catch up. So what's been working for the last 5, 10, or 20 years isn't necessarily the the economic driver that's going to be uh, front page and, and uh, you know, cutting edge and innovative in the next 5, 10, 15 years. So we've, we really have to look at where, where we're going next mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, start to implement some more innovation. Well, and that's uh, was going to be my next question is kind of where now you see potential for growth in yeah. specifically in, in First Nations communities and other Indigenous economic development. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's kind of the baseline things that we need to take care of first. So... Uh, get uh, businesses that will keep money in our community. So instead of going down the road to buy gas and food and other services that we might be able to set up those businesses in our own community and keep those money uh, revolving in our own community. So that's certainly something that most First Nations are, are 
in and have done. They've got their gas station and, you know, they may be involved in casinos and they have other, uh, you know, kind of local shops in their community. Uh, the second part of that is we need to uh, start looking at some of the, the agricultural sector. So for those who aren't aware, uh, First Nations, Saskatchewan, settled their treaty land entitlement process and some of their specific claims. And there's, of course, other uh, court cases proceeding and other matters. But we've put into you know our land holdings about a million acres over the last 15, 20 years, with another million potentially coming into uh, you know to, under our ownership from our community standpoint. The challenge that we face is that we've you know it's a willing seller, willing buyer basis. So we've often bought the land from a farmer and then just leased it back to them. And the reality of that is they probably spend 10 times more on their diesel fuel bill than they do on the lease back to the community. So while it is a business and it does generate revenue, it's what I would call kind of the the least sophisticated business. So what we need to look at is, in those scenarios, uh, encouraging and finding ways to uh, facilitate some of that capacity development for our communities to look at not only the farming, whatever that might be. It could be your traditional crops that we see in Saskatchewan or some of the emerging ones in the hemp and uh, that sector, but also the value add. Um, you know, instead of sending our lentils to, uh, you know, a different country to be spiced up, put in a bag and sent back to us so we can buy and eat, why are we doing that here? Uh, you know, creating that kind of employment and, and introducing our uh, products to new markets. Uh, similarly, as, uh, you know, First Nations get into to, uh, hemp, crops um, you know there's a tremendous opportunity not only for different products where it's building materials clothing you know natural path medicinal products with uh, CB oils and all the different kind of tinctures and things that uh, you know we can put our own indigenous branding on because I think there's uh, a growing appetite uh, internationally sometimes you're more uh, likely to see it outside your your kind of home border than, than at home but you know I think there's a growing appetite for products that are value driven in a sense that that, uh, you know, they're, they're made by a community that's, uh, you know, the revenue uh, goes back to support the community and other business kind of advancement, diversification. And, of course, uh, you know, there's there's other values about being stewards of the land and things of that nature so that there's a bit of a story and history attached to some of the products that people might find a little bit more attractive uh, than your uh, polymer-filled plastic bead lotion that uh, pollutes the, the waters and the fish. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then after that, uh, going into what I was kind of talking about before uh, when we talk about playing leapfrog, we need to start looking at where the global economy is going because, you know, we're seeing all sorts of trade wars going on, uh, but the story behind that is America lost its manufacturing capability some time ago. And we really, uh, you know, are, are doing well around the innovation sector, uh, but we're starting to see other countries not be okay with that and not wanting to get stuck into the the rut. They've seen us as a developed uh, country in North America, the United States, Canada, get into when our, our middle class is stalled out and, and we're even losing ground in the innovation sector as other countries start to enter those markets a little bit more effectively. So we have to really say to ourselves, not only as Indigenous people, but uh, you know Canadians, is how, how do we move into some of those new and emerging sectors? So you know what, what we've tried to accomplish at the network, uh, myself and our, our board of directors, is to really look at what those kind of opportunities might look like. So, you know, it could be 3D printing. You know, people think it just prints widgets, but they can print houses and cars and weaponry and all sorts of uh, interesting things. Uh, um, You know, 
know, building products and, and so forth. You know, we need to look at, as I mentioned before, some of those natural medicines. So uh, we've got a fantastic uh, opportunity in Saskatchewan with uh, non-timber forest products. So things like tree saps and uh, fireweed and mm-hmm. chaga and, and different uh, medicines from the land and, and, and natural things that we can make into teas and tinctures and lotions. We also have to look at, you know, how do we implement technology in some of our practices and that could be agriculture in terms of indoor vertical aquaponics farming uh, you know getting more uh, you know dealing with our food security water security uh, issues in our communities and, and, and Canada as a whole you know getting involved in the tech sector and data management uh, we, we just need to start to look at uh, you know how, how we're envisioning participating in the economy in the future uh, I think that's really critical to Saskatchewan's well-being for our, our First Nations, but uh, also for the resiliency of the Saskatchewan economy. Uh, certainly, we, uh, you know, if we're not participating, if we're not including the economy, uh, we might go backwards in terms of some of the the, the advancements we've seen over the last uh, 10, 20 years with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You know, there's a lot of good things happening, but um, sometimes people only see the, the negative news feeds rather than the good things that are happening in our communities, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and some partnerships they're forming as well. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and um, speaking of interest from overseas in certain products, your network recently hosted a um, forum on tourism mm-hmm. as well, on, um, which seems to be a, a growing sector, and I'm seeing more and more yeah. interest in that as well. So can you talk a little bit about some of the work you're doing in that sector? Yeah, so, you know, there, there's been a lot of uh, interest. Uh, some of that's been, of course, generated out of the, the uh, formation and the, the great work coming out of the Inter- Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. Sometimes people don't think, uh, even in Saskatchewan, that, oh, we're going to go for a holiday, Saskatchewan. Like, we're going up north, we're seeing uh, Cypress Hills, we're taking a community tour on, uh, you know, some of the history of Poundmaker or Batosh or, or something, right? There's there's just so much culture and history that we have to share in this province that we, you know, we're starting to find ways that we can mobilize that. Uh, certainly developing relationships within our communities and with other businesses and uh, developing capacity and financing and all sorts of things of that nature to start to advance uh, the tourism industry in Saskatchewan. You know, it's it's the Indigenous side is, is just in its infancy and, and then even when we look at uh, tourism in Saskatchewan overall, it's just kind of not at the top of the list of people's minds when they're thinking about where to go. And I think we have a really great opportunity here in Saskatchewan and if we uh, are in inclusive of our indigenous cultures there is a a hunger out there internationally uh, for people to really learn about what's what it is to be an indigenous person the culture the history the language some of the traditions some of the ceremonies and things of that nature and you know i think sometimes we sell ourselves short when we think that saskatchewan doesn't have much to offer and so you were speaking a little bit before about having to leapfrog and some work that's been done, especially doing due to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but there are still obviously many barriers in First Nations communities to economic development. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about which ones you're still seeing as being barriers to advancement. Well, certainly, you know, there remains a fair bit of healing that needs to be undertaken in our communities, our own reconciliation efforts, uh, you know, to overcome some of the issues that uh, our communities have and continue to face as we kind of 
rise out of those issues, we need to uh, then ensure that our, our services and our communities are up to par. Uh, you know, we struggle with uh, a lack of funds for education uh, institutions on in, in our communities. Often they're funded at like 40% of what, uh, you know, municipal uh, school would be. So those remain challenges to uh, bring appropriate level of education into our communities. And when we look at a business side, again, there's a bit of capacity challenges in our communities, but there's there's tons of opportunity. You know, there's all sorts of investment taking place, and sometimes we're we're not acting on you know our own uh, community, uh, looking towards uh, what we need to to do to develop our businesses. So there is challenges with financing. Uh, those that will always you know be a case. That's that's hard for any business, but sometimes that's an extra challenge for our communities because our lands uh, are not our land in a sense because we can't leverage that. Um, you know we can't go to the bank and take a loan or a mortgage on our land to, to invest in business. So so that remains uh, particularly challenging. Another challenge is uh, you know the dollars that we have got from tree land entitlement or specific claims. What we see is those are held in trust. And they're set up very poorly. They're really not making any money, as as everyone knows. Uh, you know, your savings account is like you know one percent or something, right? It might go up a little bit now that they're, we're starting to see some of the rate hikes. But essentially, you're investing in the Canadian currency, uh, which is volatile at the best of times, in a savings account that doesn't uh, really have any interest rate. And it, to unlock that dollar, those dollars, is, is extremely frustrating for a lot of our communities. We're thinking uh, there's there's not a lot of hard evidence out there, and there needs to be some work done but we we believe uh, in discussions uh, with other uh, folks in the sector that there's about 10 billion dollars held in trust in Canada and we need to figure out uh, ways to unlock and invest those dollars so we always see Canada and and the provinces looking at what we we call foreign direct investment looking at other countries to invest in projects within our borders I'm advocating that we need to uh, start to to turn that lens uh, inward and do something that I call First Nations direct investment. So if we do have $10 million and it's locked up and maybe not as accessible or, you know, we can only touch uh, the interest rather than the principal, that's going to be a bit of a handicap uh, factor as we look towards investment. But there's a tremendous opportunity with $10 billion to really revitalize and revigorate Indigenous inclusion economy. And I'm not scientists but if I had a hundred million dollars I could invest in something pretty sciencey uh, you know doing uh, cannabinoid oils or THC or looking at pharmaceutical applications to uh, you know our own uh, medicine medicines that we harvest from the land uh, you know we see we know Tylenols from birch bark well uh, there's been no royalty checks so we really have to start looking at how do we then move forward and use our traditional knowledge you know as a, a, a medium to look at business development in some innovative ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, those are you know, the challenges aren't insurmountable. Um, it's important that we understand what they are and to, uh, you know, have some of the, the capacity to uh, work with our communities around that. The other challenge is, you know, networks such as ourselves aren't really funded to do the work that we uh, need to undertake with our communities. The unfortunate thing, uh, I mean, it is good in one way, it deals with some of the issues, but uh, many government uh, agencies, whether it's provincial or federal, only fund economic development around a specific project. So if you're opening up a gas station or you're opening up a construction company, they will fund certain components of that business. 
the problem there is a lot of our communities are not in a position at a point in time where they can say, well, we're going to open up a construction company. Uh, they just don't, they're not at uh, a level of capacity. And what they really need is, uh, you know, training on governance and financing and just business 101 and getting structured so that they can be confident and equipped then to move forward with a business development initiative. So it's kind of uh, stuck in a bit of a rock and a hard spot. Um, you know, we have a niche that our network can serve. We don't have the funds to do it. And the other business associations uh, within the province, while they do tremendous work, uh, you know, particularly for individual entrepreneurs and attracting investment, they don't really have, you know, hard and fast, uh, you know, key performance indicators around how we're going to work towards Indigenous economic development. And and that's a real challenge, Uh, you know, and that's not to say that there's uh, any bad blood out there. The network has uh, great relationships uh, with all of our provincial businesses like the Scott Chamber of Commerce, Saskatoon Chamber, we got Shreda, Economic Development Regina, Saskatchewan Economic Development Authority. So, you know, we've partnered on conferences and scholarships and, and getting youth to events and all sorts of uh, neat things. Uh, they're just, you know, we're still, it's a, it's a work in progress uh, and I think there's a lot of good things happening. We just need to speed it up a little bit. <laughs> so in an ideal world, like what, what would you like to see happen in order to get you to the point where you can start doing, seeing some of the changes that you well, really like Well, you know, we're, we're working, um, you know, with the network to develop uh, a membership approach, you know, to work with uh, mainstream business and industry to help uh, support the network. Uh, because I think there's a lot of opportunity for mainstream business and indigenous uh, corporations to partner and learn together and collectively uh, build some really good businesses. You know, I think, uh, you know, we can't count on it. Uh, I've done a fair bit of advocacy with government, and I don't know if we'll ever get any kind of core funding that, uh, you know, some other business associations, uh, the municipality will give them $800,000 to kind of operate within the region. Uh, You know, we serve uh, all of our First Nations in Saskatchewan, and try to bring our events, uh, you know, uh, around the province and, and to be inclusive. And, uh, you know, we don't have that kind of budget. If we did, I think we could move the needle quite a bit further. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll continue to work with our friends in government and, and industry to find uh, innovative ways that we can kind of move the needle and support the work that needs to be done and, and continue to support the kind of programs and services that are existing as well. We just, there's sometimes a gap and we need to bridge that. What, what kind of advice do you tend to give people who are trying to get businesses started or, or grow their businesses? Is there some best practices or just some advice you'd like to give? Well, you know, we try to, you know, we, we do connect them with uh, lots of different programs and services. So, you know, in Saskatoon, there's CETA and, and, and Shreda and Square One, and, and there's all sorts of business uh, associations that offer programs and services. Lots of it is for free of uh, charge, and, and they can connect people with other professionals. Uh, folks for different services at a reduced cost and kind of webinars and workshops and things like that. So we certainly uh, utilize that uh, community network uh, to uh, show people that there are other places to go. You know, there's a lot of great uh, lending and financial institutions like Saskatchewan and the Equity Foundation and so forth that, you know, we connect our, our individual and, and community entrepreneurs with to try and get them some of the funding and things of that nature. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, networking and connections going on. And, uh, you know, we are lucky to have a vibrant sector that uh, is passionate about helping our communities. We're very fortunate for that. And then certainly, uh, you know, when it comes to the active side, not the individual entrepreneur, 
entrepreneur. You know, we're encouraging our communities around best practice in business. Business uh, wants to see itself in the mirror. And, and I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, uh, separating chief and counsel from the ECDEB boards. That's one model. But that's not the only model. There's often, uh, you know, ways to be inclusive around that. I mean, some of the biggest companies in the world are still run by families. Uh, the Waltons own Walmart, and mm-hmm. they are most certainly on the board along with other independent directors. So, you know, there's there's different ways that we can get there. I guess it's just getting there and, and showing people, you know, here's 10 different models that we can work with and, uh, you know, kind of pushing along in the right direction. We want to connect our communities with um, templates around business plans and marketing and things of that nature. Uh, we've partnered with the Edwards School of Business uh, and their professor there, Lee Swanson. Uh, he spent, uh, you know, a better part of his career honing down a business plan template that, you know, it's plug and play very very interactive uh, you kind of learn a lot as you go along so rather than our community spending $30,000 to go to a consultant to do a business plan they can kind of take that to the finishing line and then maybe that consultant might help them more with the actual marketing advertising or structure of the business that you know they get more bang for their buck if they you know, have some of these tools available that they can kind of uh, take things a little bit further along before uh, engaging professional services that sometimes cost a little mm-hmm. much right so yeah absolutely are there any kind of projects or businesses in the works that you're excited about seeing coming up? Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, investment going on in cannabis, uh, both on the licensed production and uh, the retail side. You know, we've seen a lot of our our indigenous communities get some of the retail licenses and and are investing in some of the production side of things. And I I anticipate we'll see folks getting more into the uh, value add and more the science side and and the genetic side and the seed side and, and things of that nature. I think that's intellectual property is kind of sometimes where it's at and and I think we'll start to see that so and it's a bit early on to say you know what exactly is happening or how it's happening so you know I think we all need to keep our ears uh, perked up to see how things come along you know we've we've got a lot of companies that are are well established and successful in construction and trucking and and uh, they're getting a lot more involved in that kind of procurement supply chain things uh, we see companies like Nutrien, uh, formerly Potash, and uh, you know coming out with their their playbook around how they expect um, you know projects to be inclusive and, and uh, using vendors uh, that have meaningful indigenous ownership and, and things of that nature. So there's a lot of uh, good things happening that kind of keeps the ball moving, and um, you know, I think we can continue to look forward to more of the same. There's some great efforts uh, around reconciliation. Uh, companies are starting to look in the mirror and understand um, you know that indigenous people are a great labor pool to access uh, there's some challenges around both knowing how to access and then also having our community uh, members being trained or certified in certain areas where there's there's a need but there is some good work going around that and that works working with city of Saskatoon and University of Saskatchewan Saskatoon Tribal Council and a number of other uh, community organizations around what we're calling an employer handbook so we're focusing on some of the calls to action around the corporate side, the business side of things with Truth and Reconciliation Commission and trying to find ways that uh, we can connect uh, employers to best practices and lessons learned around hiring, uh, recruitment, and retention of Indigenous staff. Uh, similarly, if we get some additional funding, we can start to look at how we can connect the potential employees. But importantly, we want to be able to say, you know, for forecasting for 
a large project and we know we need a hundred heavy equipment operators. If we're aware of that, there's time to get those guys trained. Uh, we've seen that take place, uh, you know, time and time again. And, you know, I think it just calls for a little bit more communication and partnering with uh, business. Uh, those might be the larger employers. And then the small to medium ones, uh, you know, they face their own challenges too because they don't have an HR manager and they have five staff at their place and maybe they're only looking for one more. Uh, so we've got to find ways to, to offer them the kind of information they, they need as well. There's great policies that have been developed by large corporations like the health region and things like that that could be transposed into a smaller business if they know where to find it and they can kind of go through and pick and choose what would work for them and educate themselves on some of those areas as well so Mm -hmm. and us of course being a a cooperative organization i just wanted to bring up a resource that your uh, Mm -hmm. network came out with a few years ago. In 2015, you released the Local People, Local Solutions, a guide to First Nation cooperative development in Saskatchewan um, as a resource. So I was just wondering why your organization chose the co-op model specifically to highlight and what are some of the advantages you think the co-op model has for First Nations communities specifically? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great uh, report and resource that folks should always have a look at if they're looking. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Indigenous or not. Obviously, the co-op model is something that's been well established in Saskatchewan and Canada and arguably was a, a First Nations concept as well. And you know, that's really why we thought it was uh, good to offer some of, I guess, more of the, the legalese and, and the, the modeling of what that looks like in, in terms of implementation. So in our communities, you know, our businesses are structured as a, a community business and we recognize our shareholders are our community members. And we usually do three things with profits out of the business. And one is to reinvest back in the community. So that can be for any number of things, whether it's you know, a sidewalk, a building, a, you know, a program. We also support uh, the business itself. So reinvesting back into the existing business and of course, uh, looking towards the diversification. That's pretty much in line with uh, what the co-op model offers. So, you know, as as members, uh, you have a vote, you have some control, and you have benefits. So those are things that are, are very um, ingrained into how uh, our communities makes decisions, both uh, politically, socially, and, and now economically. And the co-op model is, is one that... Uh, kind of easily formalizes uh, what would be considered traditional values in our communities and ways of conducting business. Uh, you know, the way our social engagement uh, takes place, it, it's just a natural fit. Uh, so certainly we've seen some that have been around for many years. Uh, you know, I think LaRange had a uh, child care co-op for 40 or 50 years now. Uh, Meadow Lake has their uh, community garden that's, uh, that's a co-op around food security, and as well as a business. And, you know, you'll find their products in many of the stores here in Saskatoon. So we see a lot of that happening. And then whether they form a co-op or not, uh, I think the values are... Are, are very similar. You know, when you look at the mirror, you can see either it's a co-op or an indigenous sectdev corporation. They, a lot of the values are the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you see potential for growth of co-ops in other things like tourism, cannabis. Yeah. If is there any interest out there? Maybe you know, I don't know. 
I, I can't necessarily speak to uh, if there's an interest, but I think we need to explore you know that and other models as uh, as a way to move forward. You know, we've seen uh, there's some great co-ops on the east coast around fisheries, so their fisheries died off and and you know had a lot of economic uh, hardship in some of their communities. But they you know a, a co-op around fishing revitalized it and put more money into the hands of the fishers and more decision making uh, capacity. So I think uh, you know we can see. Old sectors revitalized and new sectors, uh, you know, maybe having a more interactive role and, and more interest, uh, you know, by the people that are participating in that. And I think as we're looking at certainly the new sectors, pooling resources and expertise, uh, sharing risk and, and uh, you know, those kind of things really go a long way. Particularly in emerging sectors, sometimes everybody thinks they're just terribly risky uh, just because they're new, as opposed to, you know, saying this is an opportunity that we can really do well in but there, there's uh, they, they, I think they offer an ability to de-risk the situation a bit and of course you know bring some hard and fast values that people can really be comfortable with mm-hmm. into the equation of business because sometimes business feels very separate from community uh, sometimes it just doesn't feel like you're a part of it. So if you can formalize a way to say that we have a vested interest and we have a say and we're benefiting from this, I think you can maybe surmount, you know, the NIMBY thing where people say it's not my backyard to one where people have some real interest and buy-in and, and a voice in those processes and you'll see your business succeed much more effectively. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, Sean. That's kind of the last question I had for you. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, you know, I just uh, just wanted to let folks know that uh, the network's available to work with uh, our First Nations, but also we want to be able to connect our First Nations with mainstream business opportunities as well. So if there's any uh, companies that uh, are looking uh, for partnerships, whether it's a joint venture or succession planning or, you know, want to uh, to create some other opportunities, you know, the network can certainly connect you with a lot of reactive corporations and give you some insight into to what might be a, a good process to undertake in that sector. And of course, um, our First Nations are always are, are welcome to, to give us a call and ask any questions and, you know, we can try and point them in the right directions in terms of resources and things of that nature. And certainly I want to thank you for sitting down with me and letting me uh, be on a pedestal and try to create some positive change in, in, in our province and how we're doing business together. Of course, of course. Well, thank you so much again for your time and coming in today. It was uh, great to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. To give us your thoughts on any of the topics we discussed in this episode, you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter as at coops underscore first. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode of The Common Share.